0: Brian McClanahan Show, episode 247. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back to the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan and of course subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to find all those social media accounts, just go to my webpage, BrianMcClanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all of my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You get on my email list, which is a great thing because I often uh, give you discounts to my McClanahan Academy through that. So you want to go out, if you want to support the show, go to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. When you do enroll for free, you will get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. And you'll also get another goodie. You'll get a coupon out of that too. So enroll there. If you haven't done it yet, get on that email list. Um, And, of course, when you do enroll, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I've got one coming up for launch open launch in a couple of weeks, but those that are on McClanahan Academy's email list already know about this. In fact, they've known about it for about a month, and they've gotten great deals on it already. So if you're not at McClanahan Academy and you want to save some dough on those classes, go on over, subscribe at mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to do so, again, and get in on it. Now, you can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few bucks or pennies or whatever you got my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going, you can order your book plate sir. so you want my autograph on one of your books that I've written, you can get me to do that, too. Uh, you can also support the show by clicking on that tab that says Shop at the top of my page. You can buy your Brian McClanahan Show logo on all kinds of cool apparel. And you can always go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. It's a great website. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. I teach there along with, of course, Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Burser, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, a whole lot of great people. So, It's a great website, a lot of bang for your buck. It's not just history, but also philosophy and economics. So it's a little different than my McClanahan Academy and that it's bigger than just history. So go on out there and subscribe to that as well. And of course, as always, please rate this podcast, share it around on social media, like it on YouTube, do whatever you can to get more eyeballs on it because that's the best way to help grow the program and to help grow the message. So this is a listener generated episode today. And I do these a lot. So if you got suggestions, you want to hear something, send it over to me. This is this is a way that I can interact with people that listen to the show, without having callers and all that kind of thing. Um, by the way, I did see an article today. Have we reached the peak of podcasts? You know, because everybody's got a podcast right now. One of the things I've always tried to do with this podcast is be different. Most podcasts are conversations with two people or three people uh, with callers. I've never done that on this show because I wanted this show to be different. I wanted it to be reflective of questions from listeners, but also different in the way I approach the material. And that is essentially a monologue for 20 to 30 minutes. It's also a, a podcast you can listen to in the car. It's not one in your commute. It's not one that's going to take you know two hours to get through. Um, so I've tried to do those things to make this show different. And I hope you enjoy that format um, because I've, I've long thought that the conversation format, the interview, I mean, some of that stuff is very good. Uh, but I just want to do mine a little differently. So this is a listener-generated episode, though. This individual writes to me and says, hey, look, you talk about this thing in corporation all the time. What does it mean? I don't understand it. I see it all over the place, people talking about incorporation. What does this actually mean? This is a very good question because if you don't know, it's like we're speaking Greek, right? I mean, I'm here saying, well, incorporation did this and a corporation did that, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, what the heck is incorporation? I have no clue about what you're talking about. So today I'm going to talk about incorporation. Now, this gives me a good chance to plug two things. First, uh, I talk about incorporation quite extensively at McClanahan Academy for my American Constitutions class. Now, I know that's one of the more expensive classes, but it is 40 lectures on the U.S. Constitution, on the uh, several amendments of the Constitution, um, on the Bill of Rights, on the state constitutions, at least the original state constitutions of the original 13 states, and on the Articles of a Confederation, and on the Confederate Constitution. It is a meaty course, so if you want to talk about constitutions, that's the place to go, right? So, uh, if you join McClanahan Academy, you get a nice discount, you get a coupon to do something with. So, use that coupon, get that class. The other class, of course, is How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. I talk about it there as well. In fact, I talk about it in the book, so I'm going to use that book as a backdrop for this class and talk about it. So, I talk about incorporation in several different places, um, and it is a big issue. Now, when we talk about incorporation, there's two things to say here. First, you're going to have people that like incorporation, even on the right, uh, even libertarians. They're going to like incorporation. And they're going to like incorporation because they believe it secures liberty. Okay? They believe that with incorporation... We can have things like the federal government can't do anything in regard to the Second Amendment against the states. So they believe that increases, if you're on the right, that increases uh, the ability for individual citizens protections, I should say, to own firearms. Okay, So they think that's a good thing. Incorporation somehow is a benefit. That's probably the only amendment, though, the Second Amendment, that they would think that incorporation is a benefit. The left likes incorporation because they believe it knocks down things like uh, any type of religion in public spaces. Um, They think it knocks down uh, the death penalty. All kinds of things that, of course, when we get into all kinds of social issues, um, a lot of them have been hot-button topics in the last couple of years, particularly same-sex marriage and things like that. Um, So they think it knocks down any type of state regulation on those particular issues. So they like incorporation, too. Incorporation, though, was never designed to be part of the U.S. Constitution, either through the original Constitution, which is when we talk about the Bill of Rights, or the 14th Amendment. I'm going to get into that. Okay, so this is a relatively recent creation of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court fabricated this. (laughs) Uh, The Republicans in the 1860s tried to do it. But that very quickly was knocked down, and the Supreme Court, I should say, tried to do it. There are a few individuals. The intent of the Fourteenth Amendment, I think, is pretty clear that it wasn't going to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states. So a simple definition is that it's the application of the Bill of Rights against the states. So you have these first eight amendments, which is really maybe you could say the Ninth Amendment. I mean, you could say that the Ninth Amendment is part of this incorporation because. It's the catch-all amendment, but certainly not the Tenth, and the Tenth actually works against incorporation. But, um, so you have uh, the and, and the Fourteenth Amendment didn't supersede the Tenth in any way. Okay, so the, you have this idea that the Bill of Rights applies to the states; it apply it applies these civil liberties to the states or against the states, however you want to put it. And so, therefore, states cannot infringe the liberties protected in the Bill of Rights either. Essentially, what you're getting in, too, with incorporation is a view of liberty that is a substantive due process issue of liberty. The states cannot deny these things through legislation from the beginning. It's not due process where you are charged with a crime and then you go before a judge and they say, all right, look, uh, we can deny your life, liberty, or property as long as all the proper procedures were followed. It's called procedural due processing, getting you there. So, of course, you can have laws that deny your life, liberty, or property. That works. And, and you can be denied those things as long as all the proper procedures are followed when you're guilty of breaking the law. But substantive due process means, oh, you can't even have a law that would do that. There is the, the first real application of this. By the Supreme Court, substantive due process is the is the Dred Scott decision. So if you like the Dred Scott decision, well, substantive due process is your thing. You see, and I love it when you can when you can uh, tweak progressives and lefties on that. Hey, you like substantive due process? Well, then you should love Dred Scott uh, because you get them on it. And they oh they don't know what to say. Oh no 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 no. no. But that's substantive due process. I mean look. It was protecting property in federal territory from being uh, 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 abolished by the Congress through simple act of legislation. So that's your decision. All right, so that said, let's talk about how this got there, okay? So what happened after the, uh, first of all, let's go back to 1833. There was actually an attempt in 1833 to incorporate the Bill of Rights Against the States. This had to do in Maryland. There was uh, an issue where some, uh, there was some uh, docks being built, and I'm not going to get into the to the uh, details of the case. If you want more detail, just go read my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America or take that class at McClanahan Academy and read the chapter on Hugo Black. And we'll talk about Hugo Black. So this case made it all the way, it was Baron v. Baltimore, made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And John Marshall, who was chief justice, not very much longer, he's on his last years as, uh, as chief justice, last years of his life. He made one of his most important decisions and perhaps um, a, a, a vital decision. Uh, at least it was for a long time. He said that the Bill of Rights do not apply to the states. Very clear that they weren't supposed to. And if you look at the preamble to the Bill of Rights, it's clear that this is restriction on the central government only because it said it was going to prevent misconstruction, meaning that uh, one of the arguments against the Constitution is that it has all these powers, these implied powers, and the proponents of the document kept insisting, no, it doesn't, but the opponent said, well, we don't trust you, so we want a Bill of Rights. So the idea was to prevent Misconstruction of the powers of the central government, meaning it was going to do things it was not allowed to do. Now, James Wilson in his very famous State House Yard speech, and cool thing—if you take that U.S. History to 1865 class, which is the next class coming up from McClanahan Academy, um, it's already available for pre-order if you're a McClanahan Academy subscriber. Uh, but I do a reading seminar on that on that particular issue. In that class, the statehouse yard speech, I get into that. So, but James Wilson stands up and says, look, I mean, the states have all the powers that are, they have implied powers all over the place. Central government does not. So a bill of rights would be dangerous, in fact. But John Marshall said, look, okay, so we got this bill of rights. It doesn't mean that this thing applies to states. Every state has its separate bill of rights. Every state already handles this situation. You can't say the states are tied into the bill of rights. It's just not true. It was never designed that way. And John Marshall would know. After all, he was in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. John Marshall should have known some other things, too, that he didn't follow through on. But he was in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He did know about the Bill of Rights. He understood how it was supposed to be applied. He understood how it was ratified. He understood all these things. So John Marshall, more than anybody else, understood incorporation or the lack thereof. So in 1833, the Supreme Court says, no incorporation. Bill of Rights don't apply to the states. All right. Fast forward 30 years. Actually, a little over 30 years. We get to the period right after the war. We get to 1866. And the Republicans pass the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Now, what does this thing do? Well, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 says that Former slaves in the South, freedmen, can uh, own property, they can sit on juries, doesn't say they can vote, um, and so these are the things, they can own firearms essentially, so these are the things that they can do, but the most important part was they could own property and they could sit on juries. Unfortunately, that Civil Rights Act, I mean, was knocked down, okay, so Civil Rights Act is knocked down uh, and the Republicans say okay we need to do something to protect this these liberties that are being denied to freedmen in these states so they come up with a 14th amendment when I say the Civil Rights Act was knocked down uh, this it was later declared unconstitutional so we get into we need an amendment now to and it was declared unconstitutional by um, a uh, Uh, Republican-controlled court. So we get into a situation now where we've got uh, a need for an amendment. So a man named John Bigham of Ohio, a Republican, a a very radical Republican at that. This is a guy that was elected to Congress in the 1850s, lost his seat because uh, at the time he favored, at least it was said he favored, equality between the races. Um, He probably did, but this was very unpopular in Ohio. So he was considered fringe at the time. Uh, he also served in the U.S. Army. He was the lead counsel for the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. I mean, this is who this guy was. He was a par- as partisan Republican as you can get. And so he comes up, crafts the 14th Amendment. And in his mind, the 14th Amendment would perhaps incorporate. In fact, you had some of the Republicans saying this openly in the Congress. Hey, look, you know what? Um the Bill of Rights are already incorporated against the states because there's this thing called the Supremacy Clause. This was their argument. And it's very funny. If you read the debates, one Democrat stands up and says, um, yeah, you guys keep saying the Bill of Rights is incorporated. You keep saying it applies to the states, but have you all ever heard of Barron v. Baltimore? I mean, I don't know this thing that John Marshall, I mean, that guy that, uh, he's pretty important in American history. Uh, you ever heard of that thing? Their response was, we don't care. We don't care. We don't care about that. Uh, we don't care what John Marshall said about the Bill of Rights and the application of Bill of Rights against the states. We don't care about that because we think the Supremacy Clause incorporates the Bill of Rights. I mean, this is the argument these people were making. It didn't. Nobody ever argued that. Nobody ever argued that. So I mean that's like saying the supremacy clause it makes invalidates all state law. I mean this was one of the arguments against the constitution of course the the uh, the opponents of the document kept saying you got this supremacy clause this necessary and proper clause my gosh you're going to you have unlimited power and of course the proponents of the document said no 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 that's not true you're worrying too much we're not going to do that. So we got these Republicans saying the Bill of Rights are already incorporated. Well, we know that's, that's not true. They weren't. Okay, so then you get to the debate over the 14th Amendment. And there were a couple of individuals who said, yeah, I mean, this thing should incorporate the Bill of Rights. It should do it. But the dominant opinion of the Congress at the time was that it didn't. It only provided the protections that were already there under the Privileges and Immunities Clause Of the U.S. Constitution, which was lifted directly from the Articles of Confederation, which protected, essentially, your ability to hold property across state lines. That's really all it was. Now, we know Bushrod Washington had this long list of things that he thought the Privileges and Immunities Clause protected. But that was later. That wasn't original intent. Bushrod Washington was not part of the founding generation. So... Um you get different opinions on this. I remember there was a there was a schlub who kept uh um, commenting on my one of my posts on Facebook, and um uh, he was very upset about the fact that McClanahan Academy said that incorporation uh is not uh is not part of the uh of the original constitution. Uh and he was very upset about that. You're just a mean guy for saying this. And he pointed out Well, what about the Supreme Court opinion? This opinion says it's not, and you can want to read dissenting opinion, but that's just it. It's opinion. Like the first one wasn't really just opinion. So we have to go back. If we're going to measure these things, look at what the Congress said. Now, we know there were people in the Congress, the minority, who thought this thing might incorporate, but the majority didn't. And then we get to the Supreme Court. So finally, this is challenged. We got the 14th Amendment. This is where incorporation comes from. And I'm going to, Refer back now to my how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. You go back to the Fourteenth Amendment, and you read the first section of the Fourteenth Amendment. So let's read that. It says, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So that's the first section of the 14th Amendment. So, in the 1870s, we had a case known as the Slaughterhouse Cases that went before the Supreme Court. And the man who wrote the majority opinion in those Slaughterhouse Cases was named Samuel Miller. So this is 1873. And let me give you a background on the Slaughterhouse Case. In 1873, several white butchers in New Orleans sued Louisiana in federal court under the claim that their constitutional rights as protected by the first section of the 14th Amendment, had been violated. What this really meant was that they believed their civil liberties had been trampled by Louisiana law. This is the first time the court had been given the opportunity to adjudicate on the 14th Amendment, and at stake was the entire understanding of federalism. Did the 14th Amendment's protection of life, liberty, and property apply to state legislation, or did Marshall's view of federalism in Barron v. Baltimore still reign supreme? Samuel Miller wrote the majority opinion. Now, Samuel Miller was appointed by Abraham Lincoln, He was an abolitionist, he supported the rights of freedmen, he also supported equal treatment of of former slaves under the law, he was a progressive for his time, and a nationalist. And this is what he said. I'm going to read you some of this stuff because it is powerful, and I'm going to give you where this is so important because if you look at American political tradition, he's essentially siding with the same position that you would have had in the American War for Independence. Okay, so he says this, and during the writing and drafting and then ratification of the Constitution. He says, quote, or I'm going to say, I'm going to read some of this and then has this quote. If the court ruled in favor of the butchers, Congress would be given the authority to, quote, pass laws in advance, limiting and restricting the exercise of legislative powers by the states in their most ordinary and usual functions, as in its judgment it may think proper in all such subjects, end quote. So Miller's saying if we, if we follow this logic, what's going to happen is the general government is going to have a negative over state law on all subjects. On all subjects. Now, let's go back in time. Let's go back in time to when the const well, even before the Constitution. If you go look at Tom Paine's American crisis and you go look at some of the things that are being said, not just Tom Paine, but others. But Tom Paine's American crisis is a nice example of it. His complaint in the American crisis in the first page of that is that the British Parliament could legislate for themselves, legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. He called that slavery. Now, the Suffolk Resolves used the same language before that. They called it slavery. If that's the case, if Parliament can legislate for us in all cases whatsoever, there is no other definition than slavery in that way you have an arbitrary power then that can legislate for you in anything anything under the sun and that's essentially what Miller is saying when you get to the to the Philadelphia convention and a state neg- or a federal negative over state law so a negative right a veto of state law is proposed John Rutledge stands up and says that alone ought to damn the Constitution we will not agree to that so this idea of a federal negative over state law was debated and rejected, explicitly rejected in Philadelphia. And over and over again, it was rejected during the ratification process. Nobody in the founding generation wanted that. And when you look at the uh, American tradition, the American War for Independence, this is one thing that we're fighting against was the idea that some central authority could legislate for them, for them in all cases whatsoever. Furthermore, Miller correctly reasoned that quote, such a construction followed by the reversal of the judgments of the Supreme Court of Louisiana in these cases would constitute this court a perpetual censor upon all legislation of the states on the civil rights of their own citizens with authority to nullify such as it did not approve as constant. I'm sorry, with consistent with those rights as they existed at the time of the adoption of this amendment. Miller unmistakably foresaw the impact a misapplication of the 14th Amendment would have on both the states and the Constitution itself. He wrote, quote, These consequences are so serious, so far-reaching and pervading, so great a departure from the structure and spirit of our institutions, when the effect is to fetter and degrade the state governments by subjecting them to the control of Congress and the exercise of powers heretofore universally conceded to them of the most ordinary and fundamental character, when in fact it radically changes the whole theory of the relations of the state and federal government to each other and of both these governments to the people. The only imaginable conclusion under these circumstances was to reject such an interpretation because, quote, no such results were intended by the Congress which proposed these amendments, nor by the legislatures of the states which ratified them. He was 100% correct. He is pointing out what will happen here. So you say, what's the danger of incorporation? What he just said. The states and the, uh, the central government and then the courts, more importantly, will have the final say over all state legislation. Now, you can say to yourself, well, but this protects liberty. It does. It does, certainly doesn't protect uh, the ability of the communities, the political communities, to reflect the culture of their people. And we know this because, the, like as I said at the beginning, the left has been the ones who have used incorporation to assault over and over and over again the political culture of the communities of the states. There's just one instance where the conservatives have been able to do this, and that's on gun possession, firearms. But this is dangerous. It's problematic. So... You ask where it comes from, and then, okay, so you get this. So the Slaughterhouse case strikes this down. We don't have this anymore. But then you enter Hugo Black. Now, Hugo Black was from Alabama. Um, He was a Klansman, and he later served on the Supreme Court. And Hugo Black did not like the fact that Catholics were having access to state services, namely being able to use state services to get their kids to school, to private Catholic schools. So... He came up with this idea of incorporation as a protection in his mind. He was protecting the First Amendment. (laughs) He was protecting people from Catholics, in other words. And um, he said, look, what we have here is clear. We have a wall of separation between the central government and the state governments. He fabricated this. There was no such thing. We know when the Constitution was ratified, there were three states that still had state-established churches in New England. If the Bill of Rights was supposed to apply to the states, and this is what he said, if the Bill of Rights was supposed to apply to the states, then we wouldn't have had that. It would, never would have been ratified. But he's saying that you know Jefferson believed this, and Madison believed this, all these people believe this. We have uh, Jefferson's very famous letter to the Danbury Baptists. Now, if you've ever read that letter, you know that Jefferson wasn't saying that the central government, uh, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, applied to the states. In fact, the Danbury Baptists openly admitted it. Most people have never read this letter. They just, oh, yeah, well, you have a separation of church and state. What the Danbury Baptists said is, look, Connecticut does not have a First Amendment protection. And uh, maybe one day we could get that in Connecticut. And Jefferson responds, yes, that would be a great thing if one day you could have First Amendment, a type of First Amendment protections in Connecticut. But not the First Amendment was going to do it, but that the people of Connecticut would do it. Maybe one day that would be great. Jefferson certainly saw this as a benefit. He had helped author, or he did author, the bill that provided religious liberty in Virginia. And, of course, James Madison presented that to the Virginia legislature, and so you had civil liberty in Virginia, and Jefferson thought that was a great thing, but he didn't say that the central government would do it. He didn't say the First Amendment did it. No, he simply said that one day it would be great if it did. But Hugo Black comes in and says, no, 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 we've got this incorporation thing. So he made up history, and then, of course, we have the First Amendment incorporated, which means it's applied to the states, and so now states can't do anything in regard to religion. And that's been, of course, now if you, have a, if you give a 10% discount to churchgoers in your business, well, you're violating the First Amendment because you didn't give that 10% discount to non-churchgoers and all this other stupidity that we get out of this stuff. But this is what happens when you incorporate. Um, as, as Miller pointed out, you're going to have a situation where Congress will now be involved in every little minor decision of every state on every issue. And that is not federalism. He said this is dangerous to the original character of the union. It's dangerous to the central government. It's dangerous to the state governments. It's dangerous to the people of the states. It's dangerous. Because essentially what you have is every issue becomes national. And as I've mentioned on this particular podcast before, there's a reason why people are so angry in America. They're angry in America because we have top-down government for every single issue out there. This is where, think locally, act locally. I mean, when I talk about this, this is what I'm saying. Uh, we don't need that kind of government, and incorporation is a vehicle to get it. And we don't need that kind of government. Look, if, if you want to have your socialist utopia in California, as I've said a billion times on this show, go to it. But don't expect everyone else in the United States to want to get on board with that. Or if you want to have it in New England, if you want to have it in New York, go to it. On the other hand, if you want to have a very conservative government in what in, Cali- in, uh, in Alabama or Georgia, or, uh, you know, South Carolina, or Oklahoma, or any other state. You could have that, too. And the people of California don't have to be subjected to it. You see, what happens, the reason people get so upset about these national parties is because we have one-size-fits-all from both sides. The the Republicans want to have one-size-fits-all for their worldview. The Democrats want to have one-size-fits-all for their worldview. And and each side is now seen as extreme, so do we want to have that for everybody? Or would we like to have a situation where people can just get along, and they can just live and let live. That's the beauty of federalism. And this is the way it was all supposed to work. Justice Miller pointed this out in the Slaughterhouse cases. We have seem to have forgotten that because Hugo Black came in, a Klansman, by the way. I mean, this is, again, you can, you can just rib the progressives. You know, your guy that came up with this, he's a Klansman. Uh, so, you know, you like that? You like, uh, you like a Dred Scott? Because that's what you're advocating here. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's just not what was ever designed. I mean, John Marshall said as much from the beginning, and we know that the founding generation was completely against a federal negative of state law. So there's the quick and easy on incorporation. I hope I answered your question. Uh, I go into this in much more detail with specific cases in my American Constitutions class. Uh, I get into... Uh, This issue also, my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So there's a couple ways to get more of this if you want a more detailed explanation. I hope you would, because I talk about the uh, different court cases that did this. uh, Go into more detail on Hugo Black and some other things. So get on out there and get that class too. And I will see you next time on the Brian (laughs) McClellan.